Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, that's just one example. But there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your co-host Joshua and I am joined as always by Kevin, your co-host. And today we have James Spooner on the show who is uh, a tattooer as well as a music uh, festival producer and we'll get a lot more into that and a a director of a documentary film which is quite an amazing, uh, amazing history of what he basically coined the or helped coin the phrase Afropunk, and that is the name of the doc and the movement. So, welcome, James. We are super excited to have you here. Right on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, just to get things sort of warmed up, what, how did you get into the punk scene? Like, what was your kind of your impetus to, to, to get in when you were younger? Well, uh, I'll start this uh, interview off with a plug because I'm actually writing a graphic novel. Um, and drawing a graphic novel on this very subject. Um, but it's not out yet. So, you know, it's not a very good plug, but, uh, look out for it. Um, future plug. Yeah. It's future plug. Um, but, uh, I was in eighth grade. I was a skateboarder and I, uh, got into, um, you know, it was like the late eighties. And at that time, like skateboarding and punk were kind of like going hand in hand. So, um, I, I found this, there's this skate video called Ohio Skate Out. And uh, in it, in like the lower thirds, they played what the, they wrote what the name of the bands were. And uh, they were all SST bands. So, you know, if I wanted to like pretend that I was, uh, you know, Tommy Guerrero or something, I would like go out, you know, pump in my Descendants tape or my Black Flag tape for Bill Danforth or whatever, you know, like, and uh, that kind of just like skateboarding got me into it. And then, um, you know, over the course of like a couple years, I started to learn about like the DIY aspects and the things that like I deem as being really punk rock um, as opposed to just kind of like the fashion and nihilism, you know. Nice. Well, I think it's interesting too that you mentioned the SST bands because they're such, they've been such like a pathway for people to get into the music. I mean, they really were like way ahead of their time in many ways. And, and especially with the association with skateboarding, it was, it was definitely like a hand in hand thing, uh, especially at that time. Um, So I, I actually, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was just, I was just thinking, you know, I was watching um, this documentary yesterday it was, it's called like Ugh, the music war. Um, and it's like, it's just a bunch of con- concert footage from 1981. And it's like every, oh, all these new wave bands. Um, but the dead Kennedys and the cramps and like a few like notable punk bands were in it. And I was just thinking about like how in California, you know, you had, 
bands like uh, the ones I just mentioned and the Dickies or whatever. And then at the exact same time in New York, you had like Agnostic Front, you know, and like how like epically different those bands are, you know, um, but how they're part of the same scene and how just basically like how our environment really informs like the sound that comes out and the things that we're screaming about or whatever, you know? Yeah. I'm, that it's funny that you referenced that. I hadn't thought of that, that uh, movie slash, and it was a, it was a record too, when it came out in a really long time. In fact, my, my introduction to punk was in, in, you know, what used to be junior high, I guess it's, it's middle school now. Um, and my, one of my best friend's brothers was a, like just a, he was just, you know, way into punk, like, went and saw the dead Kennedys when we were like still in junior high. And, um, you know, I like some of those bands really stuck with me from that, from that record and, and movie X was one of them. And yeah. I, got, I got, I got to see them when I was like, like 14 or 15 years old and just like completely blown away. Um, you know, that's a, and the OMD song actually on that record is great. I think, I think they play the song Enola Gay on that. Don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, it, because- it's crazy. I mean, we're, we're, totally like going down a rabbit hole, but it's, it's, it's crazy. Just like how, what I th- I was watching this and I was just like, there's probably like 30 bands that, that they show in that two hours and they couldn't be different in like genre or, or sound. Um, but it, but they were all kind of like put into this like alternative, like none of them except for the police was a big band at the time, you know? So yeah. it's interesting because when, you know, when I think about music now and I was like, where does that exist? Where a band is like big enough to be like, you know, have a thousand people watching them, but also not be big enough to be like known by everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess it's really just in hip hop, but it was just, it's just yeah. interesting. Well, I think the other, the other interesting sort of the, the side note of that, cause it sounds like you and I are pretty close in, in age and generation as far as like when we got into, into alternative music, it was, there was a lot less dividing lines then. I think that mostly just like super hardcore music nerds, like audiophiles were really like, oh, well, XTC isn't really a punk band, you know, but like, anything that was alternative where someone was wearing like crazy glasses or had crazy hair or was singing music that you wouldn't necessarily hear on top 40 radio. To me at that point, I probably would have put in the, in the punk class, like the, you know, the, the kind of weird, like MTV, you know, 120 minutes kind of stuff. I would be like, okay, I'm cool with that. Yeah. I mean, you, you basically had to, uh, depending on where you lived, you know, if you were in a big city, you could probably get away with being like, Oh, I only hang out with like goths or something. But if you were from a smaller place, it was just like all the weirdos hung out together and occasionally mingled with metalheads, you know? Yeah. So, so you were, you said you were around 14. Yeah. Um, and, and so in the high desert in, in yeah. Southern California. Okay. So, so did you have that sort of feeling when you started getting into it? Like, Oh wow, I've, found my people or was it sort of gradual or I think that I had a lot of like um anger and um you know a sense of injustice and I think that's something that probably most punks um come into the punk scene with is this like uh this the sense of like personal injustice and then uh you know you hear a bunch of people who seem to be your peers, like making music that you can, you can imagine making yourself. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's a certain level of empowering, uh, there's an empowering feeling that you get from like being a kid who's like, Oh, my heroes are kids that like are, that that seem accessible to me, even if, you know, even if you live on the other side of the country or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely, when I I walked into that, that space, when I first saw like a real punk rocker in school or something, I was just like, okay, I don't know what that kid is, but I want to be his friend, 
you know, and, <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, totally. And you see, and I would see like the girl with like her hair is all big. I mean, I guess every girl's hair was big, but like you know, her hair was black and it was big. You know, <laughs> and, maybe had like one braid coming off the back. Yes, you you so, nailed exactly what I'm, I'm I'm thinking of, and like you know, like just like knee high socks and whatever, and it was just like okay, like what who do i have to be to get that girl to notice me you know uh, <laughs> you're talking about like 95 percent of my high school crushes right there yeah exactly so it's like for real you know so you i think that that's a big you know it's part of the equation when you're in school it's like who are you attracted to whether that be for friends or um you know partners and uh in that, you know, in that like quest for like acceptance, you kind of find yourself and you figure out if you're like really about it or not, you know? Yeah. I, um, so we, um, we, we kind of delved into this with um, Michelle the other day when we interviewed her and her, her, her interviews up now, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it, but it's, it's pretty great. And so you lived in the high desert growing up. Was it sort of a small town? Yeah, I mean, um, I have kind of a weird childhood in that, like, we moved a lot, a lot. Like, I never went to the same school for more than two years. Yeah. And, hmm. um, all of my elementary and middle school years were in, mostly were in the high desert. And they're all, like, these kind of drive-through towns where you, you just stop to get gas on the way to, like, Vegas or Big Bear. Um, and then... Uh, all of a sudden in, in uh, freshman year of high school, just after my mom was like, we're moving to New York. And we just, so then all of a sudden, oh, I, wow. I, That's amazing. I'm living in the West Village of New York City, you know? Um, <laughs> so did you acclimate pretty easily to that? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I, my mom was, she gave me a lot of freedom and like we moved in the beginning of the summer. So we lived like oh, right. five blocks from um, Washington Square Park. So I just like hung out there for like four or five days until I saw some girls with like green hair and I just like approached mm-hmm. them and like we just became fast friends. And that was my whole summer was just like every day Washington Square Park, friend hanging out with the kids with green hair. And, um, yeah. you know, and then, and then I went to high school and I went to like an art high school and there were, you know, there were punks around. There were like, you know, there were kids who were like in various elements of the fringe and, um, you know, ranging from like uh, kids who liked, you know, Jane's Addiction and Smashing Pumpkins to like a girl who is dating the singer of the casualties, you know? So it was like, <laughs> I had like, access to all of these different um avenues of like the punk uh, sphere and you know was able to find like step step my foot in like with the tough guy stuff and being like oh that doesn't feel right and stick my foot in with like you know like the ska kids or whatever and like "Ah, okay you know and then eventually i found the kind of like diy uh, ABC No Rio, crust punk, straight edge, mm. like smart kids, you know, and that's kind of where I landed. Nice. Did you? Were you? Did you know like the guys from like uh, Born Against or any of those bands? That was a little bit before my time. I would. I okay. moved there. I moved in '91. So. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So it was like I missed. I missed that by like a couple years. Yeah. Uh, like the New York kind of heyday as far yeah. as whether it was CBs or ABC was kind of like in 89. Um, right. So by 91, it's like, you know, I saw like the last Gorilla Biscuit show, like the, the first right. last Gorilla Biscuit show, um, you know, and I, yeah. <laughs> the first uh, one. Yeah. Of many. Was actually like my first band in New York was uh, uh, Scott from, um, from uh leftover crack uh played drum oh, awesome um and you know it's just like you know we were all just i was 15 and just kind of like 
kids who are 19 are scary when you're 15, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You know, so um, it wasn't until like I consider my, while I have all of these fond memories of punk in those first like three or four years, like I really feel like my, my, I gained my stride and I became kind of the person I am today when I was, you know, kind of like I found uh, straight edge and like emo was starting and it was kind of like, Oh, this is an alternative to like the tough guy stuff. I don't, I don't fear for my life. People don't bring guns to these shows, you know? Um, and I can, uh, and then I can get into arguments about politics and stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things about that time of, um, of the scene, like that, the same time all that was happening, ABC No Rio and, you know, all the DIY stuff was happening in New York. We had, you know, Gilman Street out here mm-hmm. and Joshua and I, although a little bit apart in age as well, um, lived in a town called Santa Rosa, n- north of the Bay Area, where we kind of had our own music scene that crossed over into Gilman and the Lookout bands and all that stuff. But like it was definitely a totally different scene than the one I came into the, 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 the violence had kind of left. I mean, we, we had more problems in Sonoma County with like Nazi skinheads and other sort of tough guy. Uh, Cause I started going to shows in 91 or 92 mm-hmm. and it, it was just like, it was just like a punk rock hippie paradise. Yeah, totally. Point, you know, totally. it was just um, easy. But I think it's interesting, you know, to kind of see where on both coasts, the same sort of, uh, you know, not exactly the same scene, obviously, but the same sort of ideas were sort of developing with, with punks delving into issues that were, you know, not just, you know, pertinent to them, but more global. Right. And I think like one of the things and a big reason that I, that we, that I wanted to get you on the show is the, where your sort of experience with punk took you along with your, you know, your, your, your background being black at shows. And I, and I, you know, I, I like the, the movie trailer talks about it constantly. Like you're interviewing people that were like the only black kid at the shows they were going to. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's just a, I, I'd love to hear more about kind of how that affected and informed your, you know, your experience in the scene. Cause it's, you know, it is a pretty much a, a white kid scene. I mean, I'm, you know, can't really lie about it that's just how it is you know especially in in new york and the bay area i guess not so much in la um but you know definitely the there's a there's there's not as many people of color um or there wasn't as many people of color that were that everybody knew each other back then right Um, yeah i mean it's interesting um so i mean just to kind of back up i guess like i had a again, kind of a, a weird, you know, experience having started punk, getting into punk in like the high desert, um, and then moving to New York. So in, you know, so my, 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 uh, formative years, the first kind of two years that I was introduced to punk, uh, it very much felt like, um, this is a place for white people and like me and the other black kid that, were into punk um were like granted access because in their words that them being like the the white punks like we were black we were niggers you know so it, it we we were allowed to uh to participate you know and i think my friend who um he was the first punk that i ever met um who's and he's black, he was, he, uh, he was already like, felt like the coolest kid in our school. And I think he had like a really cool older brother that kind of like set the stage. So, um, so he was granted access and then I was granted access via him, but there were like Nazi punks everywhere, you know, and it was very common for people to wear like swastikas on, you know, or to like have swastikas on their trapper keepers or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Um, And to have that kind of very blatant um, white power, you know, these 
I mean, let's face it. These are like 13 and 14 year old kids. They don't even know what they're talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but they were, you know, they thought just as I thought that that's what you, that was part of the, that was a prerequisite to being punk, you know, because in our desert town, we didn't have access to like a a variety of, of thought, you know? Um, So, you know, people would hear uh, guilty of being white and be like, see, they're a Nazi band. And I was like, okay, you know, like, how could I not say that minor threat, you know, wasn't a Nazi band because the only information I have is that they don't do drugs and they're guilty of being white, you know, and uh, (laughs) I'd hear black flag and they're talking about I'm a white minority. And I could take that seriously because I didn't have the, the information that there were all kinds of Latinos in that band. You know, I didn't have the information that like, um, that uh keith morris is a smart ass and he's singing in uh with sarcasm or he's writing these lyrics with sarcasm you know um so you know so it was it was a weird way to enter and then um you know but i was like fuck this like nobody's gonna tell me where i can and can't be and this feels right to me despite all of this other stuff and for the most part, people are nice to me, you know? Um, it wasn't until I moved to New York that, and that's when I really started meeting punks of color and going to shows and seeing black people on stage um, that I started uh, kind of reassessing, oh, wait, like, you know, Ian Mackay is not a racist, you know? It's just like, I'm taking these lyrics out of context or whatever. Um and then, you know, by the time that I was like 25 and I was making and I started making Afropunk, that was like a reaction to a lot of the um, white privilege that like permeates throughout the scene. And it would be, you know, it, 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 it would be like inauthentic to say that like the scene is very brown Um But it's also, I think, discrediting all the brown kids that are part of the scene, a lot of whom we don't even acknowledge because, you know, it's like, how many people are walking around being like, yeah, the singer of Agnostic Front and the singer of Madball are Latinos, you know, saying like, we don't think about that because they are light, they are very light. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Well, I I think it's, I mean, also, you know, kind of putting it that way brings to mind, I think one of the things that you have really explored is with, with the sort of percentages being what they are, you know, as far as like how many people of color are in the scene versus how many are white. Um, there's, there's a huge amount of influence and creativity coming from the people of color in the scene in terms yeah. of just raw percentage. I mean, yeah, and I, if and you I, really I, dig I, in, it's crazy. Like, yeah. because so much of this came out of like the more outside the box, you know, musicians from the forties, fifties and sixties. Right. And if we're being honest, most of them were black, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's definitely there are definitely fewer black people in the punk scene than than the other like quote unquote minorities, but there are like an insane amount insane amount of POC people that I had no idea until like I started, and really until like the last few years when like the the POC punk scene really started to. Um, like demand to be seen, you know? And then all of a sudden people are going back and they're, they're like, dude, fucking Robo from black flag was, is Latino. Like, you know, going through all of these people and you're like, Oh wait, really? You know, (laughs) like I, you know, and the misfits. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like, we don't even see, cause we're like, part of it is like, we're not seeing their faces cause they weren't, it wasn't as accessible as it is now. And part of it was just because like, when you see a, a, a sea of, if you just shine a light on, on a crowd, unless they're very dark skin, everyone just looks white, you know? So, sure. um, 
So any, anyhow, like, you know, I definitely went through like these, you know, having a, uh, reacting, I should say, like, I'm really, uh, I really believe that like the punk scene is reactionary and on a personal level, I was very angered in my early twenties by, you know, the, the fact that, that like I had become vegan, I was, uh, you know, pro-choice and I was like, you know, rallying for gay people. And I was just like really about all of these like good causes. But when it came to conversations around race, it really ended with like fuck Nazis. And that put, that left a lot of people off the hook and a lot of those people were responsible for making me feel bad about myself, you know, Hmm. as a person of color, you know, and just recognizing that like, there are things that, you know, simple things like that, you know, like I wanted to have like the, that kind of like mop top Spock haircut in the emo days. And I, and it, and it, you know, it was like I had to get a, I had to get a straight perm to do it, and it, you know, like that chips away at your soul, you know. Yeah. And, and that, huh. that's not like anyone, one individual telling me like, "Hey, you're not supposed to be here." But it wasn't until the early 2000s that I'd ever seen like somebody who has like you know tight hardcore kid clothes and an afro you know what i'm saying like that just right. mm-hmm. you know representation really matters and it you know we were all kind of locked in this like white beauty standards um paradigm so it's uh, interesting to to hear uh, you talk about how it sounds like there was like more representation in the artists themselves but the bent of the art lacked representation, right? Like lyrically it lacked representation and in the style it lacked representation. Yeah. I mean, all of that, you know, I mean, it's like, I I would take it where I could get it, you know? So I remember like mm-hmm. seeing Los Crudos like a bazillion times and just being so proud of them for like right. doing what they are doing, like speaking in Spanish, like really just kind of like, they're kind of like, look, we're doing this for our people. And if you are, you know, not one of our people and you're here, that's cool. But like, don't think this is for you, you know? And they could do all, they could say all of that just by speaking in Spanish. And, um, you know, for black people, that's a lot harder because we don't have like a common language. Um, but that's kind of what Afropunk set out to do. Um, so when I first, you know, I made the movie and then I started like screening it and, and I remember thinking to myself, like, we'll never have the scene that the Latino punks have, you know, like I'll never see an all black mosh pit. I just couldn't even imagine it. And then, um, I was in New York, you know, I lived in New York and I was kind of put, I was started putting on shows that like were like I would do a screening of the film and start and put some bands on. Um, and I was specifically picking like black fronted bands. And then I just started walking around uh, New York city and giving flyers to black people, you know? And, you know, it wasn't like I was going up to leaving records that, I mean, leaving flyers at like generation records or wherever it is that punks get records. I was like, I want black people to come to these shows, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I started doing that and, you know, it was, it was like the first show was like two or 300 people. And for a lot of them, it was their first experience with punk and hardcore, but you hand a flyer to a black person and you say like, Hey, do you want to come to this thing? And they look at it and it says Afro and then punk. It's like, Hmm, well, I don't know about punk, but I know about Afro. So yeah, like that sounds interesting, you know? Nice. That's awesome. And, um, you know, so that, 
like kind of started getting a lot of black people into alternative music or, you know, and, and it wasn't like all me. It was also like the time, like this was the height of the Jiggy era where everything was like puffy and biggie. I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, and Jay-Z and like, you know, popping bottles and all this stuff. And even within the black community, there was a pushback and I was seeing people um, you, like Neo soul had started to sprout and um, like Pharrell was like pushing skateboarding. And, you know, there were, there were, there were people and artists who were like, look, we're more than just this one thing that like BET is pushing on us. So, um, you know, even with like, you know, outcast coming out with that, that uh, record where Andre 3000 was just not rapping and, you know, most deaf did that song with bad brains and like, there was all of these things happening. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that the black community at large was just ready for something else. And Afropunk was like in New York was like a cool answer. Um, Yeah. You know, is that that kind of, so timing what, I mean, you're, the documentary came out what in the early two thousands? Yeah, two thousand three. So, I mean, all this is going on, right? And you're working on this documentary. Were they? Were, were did those coincide? I'm just like to get the the timeline right for myself. Well, I, I started working on the film in two thousand one. I was completed okay. in two thousand three. I started screening it really aggressively, um, and doing shows in New York. Um, I also like went on tour with, um, with this band um, through the Midwest. And um, I was just really trying to bring attention to, uh, I was trying to do a few things at once, but I wanted more black people to, um, in, I wanted like the mainstream black community and even like the alternative black community uh, to like embrace the, like the ideals of the DIY scene. Um, and I wanted white punks to like have to take a strong look at themselves and for there to be, you know, to, and I was hoping that there could be like a change within the punk scene that would like allow for people to not go through the, some of the things that I went through. Um, By the time that, uh, you know, in 2005, so in 2004, I teamed up with this dude, Matthew, and the two of us started doing these like monthly events, which uh, were called the Liberation Sessions. And they were basically what I was talking about, handing out like flyers to black people. So there were like the first, possibly the first all black mosh pits, you know, it was like 300 people. And 20 of them are not black, you know, and um, and the bands on stage were like hardcore bands. And, um, you know, it was a variety. I would like, you know, it'd be indie rock and, you know, anything that I kind of deemed in the like alternative um, scene. And, And to some degrees, there would be like like a rap rock group or whatever. Right. Um, And uh then in 2005, we did the first Afropunk festival, which was like a weekend of like three shows, like one, you know, at different clubs. And uh, there was a movie component at the time as well. And that kind of festivals, liberation sessions, um, kind of pattern went on for like three years. And then... Um, and then uh, it started to get, it started to get big. Like, um, oh, it's amazing. My partner was like, "Oh well, you know, like we just got a CMJ, or we are on South by Southwest, and we like got these sponsors. Oh, Toyota wants to like, you know, pay you to blog on their website, and like all of these kind of things." And it was overwhelming and exciting, and you know, I can be honest and say that I like lost my footing. And um, then like there was my last festival with Afropunk and was uh, in 2008. And 
that was the first like fully corporate sponsored one. It was like Toyota and Mountain Dew. Um, there were all these like smaller sponsors as well, you know, and it was like, it was outdoors. It was also the first free one. So that meant it could also the first all ages one. So it was kind of like I was going, I was getting what I wanted and it was like, it was free and it was all ages, but I was also like being censored and crazy shit was happening with the sponsors where they were asking me to do things that were like, uh, uh, didn't feel good. And, uh, you know, these compromises got to be too much. And I just ultimately was just like, this is not like, I didn't start Afropunk so that I could sell Mountain Dew, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you basically brought, I mean, you brought a a festival that was sort of the pinnacle of like punk Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you basically started it with what sounds like, you know, like, like you MacGyvered it. It was paper clips and duct tape. And like, you made this thing happen. And then, you know, however many years later, you've got Toyota sponsoring you. And, you know, I've looked at the, at their current website and it's like, you know, Budweiser and, you know, it's crazy. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, and, it, so- and when, when you start bringing in that kind of money and those kind of sponsors, you lose the DIY element. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no, there's no, in my opinion, of course, which is just my opinion. It's very hard to work within that system for rebellion. You're you're basically like, like, look, you know, what I've learned over the years is that there is the mainstream and there's the underground and they will never, ever cross. And I don't care if you are, if you are a punk band, I'm, I'm of the, I'm of the breed that's like, if you're a punk band, as soon as you sign on the dotted line, you are no longer a punk band. I don't care what you sound like. I don't care what, like, it doesn't even mean that I don't like you. It just means you are not part of this scene anymore. And Afropunk stopped being punk probably in the last year that I was involved when we were getting these CMJ things and I was, you know, and we were promoting not only were we not promoting band, like, you know, th- th- we were not only were we not promoting like punk bands, there were punk bands on the sta- on the band, on the stage for sure. But, you know, it was also like, you know, it was like Bone Crusher and, you know, like Janelle Monet. I love Janelle Monet, but it was like, you know, these kind of like R&B acts. And, and at the time it was like, well, this kind of like, I can still see where Janelle Monet fits into this puzzle, you know, but um, you know, it, it just was like, it was also like the Pepsi corporation telling us that we're sending you uh mountain dew red because target market research tells us that black people like red drinks, you know? Oh, and, and I just got to swallow that, you know, it's just like, you know, Oh, and also, Hey James, would you go mind taking pictures of all these black kids enjoying the drinks, you know? And I have, <laughs> I have that photograph. Like I went and did it. And it's like, you know, I wish this was on video so you could see it's like all these kids with their red drink in the air. And I'm just like, this is my sellout moment right here. Like, fuck, mm. you know? So did you feel that at the time? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's, there's a video on um, YouTube, an uh, interview with me at that festival. And you kind of have, it's, you kind of have to watch the whole thing for the context but you can see me really struggling with trying to justify uh, the stuff, you know? Yeah. And the way that I was justifying it was like, look, this is, it's free now. You know, it's all ages. Now we built a skate park, you know, like this is, this is amazing. And in so many ways it was amazing, you know, and it, in so many ways it is amazing, but it's absolutely not punk, you know? I like that outlook. I yeah, like me that. Too. You know, you can you know you can still like this thing and love this thing, but maybe it's just not not part of it anymore. Yeah, and it's not for me. And so you know, now it's been on for like sixteen years or something, probably more than that. And it's in seven countries, and hundreds of thousands of people come. And all the my partner and and his partners are millionaires, and there are billionaires who are invested in it, and all of this stuff and, um, you know, and there's all kinds of controversies based around choices they have to make due to capitalism. Um, 
but you know, I, I, I don't, you know, it's like, let me, let me give you kind of the, the silver, the punk rock silver lining to it all, you know, cause it really gets dark and dirty at different points. And a lot of people, including myself have been like ripped off and hurt and, and uh, it, it sucks. But remember before when I said that punk rock is really reactionary. So yeah. the way that I've seen it, the, the, the beautiful thing that came out of any darkness that surrounds Afropunk is that there are kids in every corner of the country, brown kids, who look at Afropunk and are like, what the fuck? Fuck that. And then they start their own thing. And now there's, at last count, eight um, different collectives doing like POC specific punk shows. You know, that's amazing that are like in reaction. So it's like the thing that I wanted to happen happened. It's just that they needed something to react against, you know, and, and right. it turned out to be me. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and like, honestly, I couldn't be prouder. It's like rad, you know, and, and I have this, that, I found this, interview. Awesome. I found this interview with me from that, um, from that festival where I say uh, in it, um, you know, one day Afropunk is going to become irrelevant. And because there are going to be a group of like 14 and 15 year olds who are like, fuck this thing and doing their own thing. And I'm going to be like, hell yeah, can I come to your show? You know, and I was so happy when I found that quote, because it just reminded me that like, I've felt this way the whole time, you know? Yeah, that's like that's the that seems to be um the the lesson on this show every time at the yeah. end when I look back it's like oh do it yourself, you know. Totally. Well, and I mean, yeah, do it yourself and and then take everything you've learned and, and do it yourself better the next time, right? Cuz yeah, it's part like, of the whole thing is like we're going to make mistakes and do things, you know, and fuck up and all kinds of other stuff, but like what do you what do you what are you learning from that? And I think it's really interesting that you, um, that you actually kind of uh, saw the future that there's going to be somebody building like a rebellious version of you. Um, so. But that's what has to happen. We, um, like if, if we look at the history of any music movement, there's a new generation mm-hmm. of people who are like, fuck these old fogies you know and every time yeah yeah every know? time they, totally they know better and sometimes they do you know it's funny the way you talk about like people who sell out or whatever like i kind of feel like i'm green day you know like you can still enjoy me but i'm not really part of the punk rock scene so much anymore why do you feel that, that makes sense um I guess because although like I still have those ethics and love the everything, nothing's really changed on that end. I'm not like, like I wouldn't know what's going on right now. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't know where a warehouse show was near me. Yeah. But I don't think that matters. You know, I mean, I think that Mm. there's anything that we should take away from punk rock is that like, it doesn't matter. Like it's not about the music. It's never been about the music. You know, it's, it's, no, I agree. Yeah, so, 100%. so, you know, it's like we get older and we, you know, we go further back into the room, you know, watch the bands from, from the back of the room. <laughs> and, then, and then eventually we're not even there anymore, you know, and that's okay. You know, it's like I've, ex- I've expanded my horizons of music that I like and I still very much love punk rock and and seek out new bands but there was like a decade where i didn't look for anything new because i was just like doing other stuff and interested in finding out about other kinds of music and whatever and but like i was still vegan you know i was still like you know yeah yeah, totally you know like whatever it's like you're still like taking the information 
And, you know, and I'm still like raising my child to like, not be a sellout, you know what I'm saying? Like, so <laughs> that's a good one. You know what I'm saying? I don't think like, I've heard that one before. I mean, it, the other day she was going through, she's 10 and she's like going through my closet. <laughs> that's so fucking funny. <laughs> wanting to like wear a t-shirt of mine. And she's like, Oh, can I wear this one? And I was like, well, you have to listen to the album first. Cause I don't want, I'm not raising no posers. And she was like, okay. That's amazing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that is great. So, um, I, it's unbelievable. We're, we're already at like our normal sort of wrap it up point. Um, we usually try to get through the interview and start wrapping it around at around 45 minutes. I, there's so much more to talk about though. So I'm wondering James, two things. One, can we bring you back on? Cause I feel like we, you deserve a part two. Cause there's like, there's this stuff that we've, we've basically gotten to, to the festival. We haven't talked much about the movie other than a couple of little anecdotes. And then we have your, your entire, you know, vegan tattooing career, which is just a whole nother thing. That's amazing. Being covered in tattoos myself. Nope. I lost you. Oh, Kevin, you just muted buddy. Oh, the, the fact that you figured out how to do all this stuff, uh, all the, you know, your entire uh, process of tattooing vegan is, is amazing. Um, so I'm wondering first, can do, would you consider coming back on so we can get like part two to this story? Cause there's yeah, a lot more to talk I'm about. I'm like, I'm such a, I, I, I tend to monopolize the interview. I want it to go the way I wanted to go. So. Well, but we, we actually, it's like, I, I gotta tell you, like, it's hard sometimes to like to muster the energy to ask a ton of questions. So it's nice for us sometimes to just have somebody that's got stories to tell, you know, and, and, you know, beliefs to talk about. And, you know, I think quite honestly, ending on the the note of these kids sort of making the counter, <laughs> the counter festival is a, is, is a really good note to, so that we could like restart this, uh, you know, in a few weeks. But before we do that, I, I do want to. I do want to ask you. You mentioned the graphic novel. I knew you were working on that because I've seen some some sketches and drawings that you've been putting up on social media. Um, what are you thinking in terms of timing getting that that done? Because that's going to be really awesome. Thanks. Um, I got like about it's three hundred fifty pages, and I'm done drawing, but I'm I'm shading now, which is you know probably another year of shading. Um, yeah. And I don't have a publisher at the moment and I'm not sure like what direction, you know, it's again, it's that thing of like, do I go the traditional route and, you know, risk learning the things that I've already learned or do I do it myself? And like, you know, whatever. So, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I guess I just would not not hold my breath for it, but you can like, (laughs) fair enough. Yeah, just you know, follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's Spooner's No Fun, and um, you can, you know, I'm posting all segments of it all the time and stuff, and trying to. I talk a lot about, I reflect a lot on like punk rock and in this, uh, you know, through the eyes of an adult. So it might be interesting to your listeners. That's awesome. And then uh, your tattoo website. Uh, that's monocle tattoo. That's M O N O C L E, uh, tattoo. And, uh, also on Instagram, uh, a monocle tattoo. And I recommend following both James. And we'll his... put links uh, yeah, on for the sure. show notes as well. Yeah. Um, so one quick in maybe like a sentence or two, what is the most fulfilling part of being an adult grown up punk? Um, this is something you probably should have sent me ahead of time. (laughs) Yeah, that's a hard question. I was so let me let me give an example answer that I would share. And and this is just the thing that when we talk about this, like show in and show out is that it's awesome to be able to take all the things I learned from punk rock and apply them to my adult life. Yeah, totally. I mean, Listen, there is nothing, no, there's nothing I'm afraid of in terms of like uh, moving to another country or 
starting a completely new business, you know, like I can't tell you how many times I've reinvented myself just because I was like, I had that kind of like, fuck it, punk rock attitude of like, well, yeah, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know anything. I never listened, read comics, you know, but I was like, I want to tell this story and I think comics would be the best way to do it. I know how to draw. I know how to like tell a story, you know, like, so fuck it, let me go. In the same way I made a movie and I've made two movies, you know, it's just like, it's, it's the same attitude as when I was 13 and I'm like, uh, like, I don't know the difference between a guitar and a bass, but I'm going to play the four string one. Cause my friend plays a six string one and we're going to just be in a band, you know? Nice. <laughs> and it's like, you know, if it sucks, it sucks. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but how will I know if I don't try? And that's kind of like, I am through and through like absolute believer in that punk rock mentality. And uh, so I've just brought it through to everything that I've done. And I try to, I try to inspire um, other people and at least my kids to just be like, have that same, I, I, I like to call it punk rock audacity. Oh, that's a good term for it. That's perfect. So um, real quick on our end, um, and James, sorry to hold you for this part of it, but we're donating all of our money from our Patreon this season through the end of the year to Hospitality House San Francisco, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a frontline uh, service organization working with people that have um, issues with mental health and are in recovery that are looking to better their lives through they use art programs and they have housing and they're just amazing and a small organization so any little bit helps and uh, so that's what we're doing for our give back for this season and um, James I want to thank you for coming on I mean just totally thoughtful amazing conversation and you know it gives me more to think about about how i can you know sort of continue this this life of 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 improvement and seeing people uh around me for who they are you know so i really appreciate it right on yeah we'll pick it up next time excellent excellent thank you so much for coming on james thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time uh yeah see you next time